ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, Kirsty Melville here with the History Listen. Now, if you ask Australians about the 1975 Indonesian invasion of East Timor, they'll probably mention the Balibo Five, the Australian journalists killed in October that year. But the shocking killing of the Balibo Five was only one event in the 24-year-long brutal occupation of East Timor, which ended in 1999 when the island nation voted for independence. Millie Skoko's mum, Li Xiao, Lorraine, is Chinese Timorese. She left East Timor, now Timor-Leste, for boarding school in Australia, before the Indonesian invasion. And although Lorraine never talked much about her life in Timor as a girl, for Millie, the family's connection to the island nation has hovered like a shadow in the background. When Millie discovers an online article about her grandfather and his life in East Timor, she decides to try and uncover this little-known side of her own history. And a heads up that this episode contains some graphic content. I've never seen my papa, my grandmother, cry. Not once. Then earlier this year, she did. It happened when she was telling me a story that her son, my uncle, was in hospital and only I knew the way to the hospital. Mum, who was with me that day, had to translate. Popo was speaking to me in Hakka, the main language of the Chinese people who live in East Timor. Mum said that Popo was telling me about my uncle because Popo thought she was back in East Timor, her home until 1975. That time my grandmother cried, I only had a vague idea about my mum's side of my family, who were Chinese and came from East Timor. I never thought that hard about my Chinese Timorese identity. Instead, my siblings and I have always said that our ethnic background was, like our dad, Chinese-Indonesian. Growing up, my mum and my grandmother hardly ever spoke about their lives in East Timor, and I never really asked. But there was these strange phrases my mum would come up with. Like I wasn't allowed to have a sleepover at a friend's house because mum said I wasn't part of my friend's war plan. Why did they or we need a war plan? I used to just put these down to one of my mum's quirks. Just one of the many odd things she'd say. But my papa's story about East Timor that day got me wondering about this side of my family and their story. Time to do some Googling. When I came across a Wikipedia entry, I saw my grandfather's name, Tokolai, on the front of an old building in Dili, East Timor. I don't remember much about Gongong, my grandfather. He died when I was about five. I do remember him always being happy, though, and a great musician. He's very good, you know, on So how come I didn't know much about this building in East Timor? Why was it named after my grandfather? 
Why didn't we talk about it in the family more? Why? I, I think it's very sad to talk about it. <laughs> yeah. I knew mum had already come to Australia in 1970 when she was 12 years old to go to boarding school in Sydney. At the time, communications were limited to the occasional letter between mum and my grandparents. As the Portuguese empire crumbles and burns around the world, the administration in Timor has now admitted that the fighting in East Timor has escalated into full-scale civil war. In 1974, when the colonial Portuguese announced they would leave, tensions started building in East Timor. From August 1975, there was fighting between the three major political parties, a struggle over who would hold power. And so when the civil war broke out in East Timor, mum had no idea about whether her parents were safe. And as you've heard, the 272 refugees from East Timor arrived safely in Darwin yesterday afternoon and spent the night on the floating hostel, the Patrice. My grandparents did end up getting out of Dili early in the civil war. Not to Darwin, but on a ship to Bali, then to Singapore. Eventually, they got to Australia in 1976. But what about the families who weren't as lucky as mine and who couldn't get out of Dili in 1975? Well, we're interrupting the normal program this afternoon for a brief report on the invasion of East Timor by the Indonesians. It's thought that more than 1,000 Indonesian troops are taking part in the invasion. They've either parachuted or landed into the city of Dili from small boats sent out from three or four warships in Dili Harbour. From September, Indonesian forces had started making their way into the country from West Timor. And on December 7, 1975, they entered Dili. The ABC has been getting messages from its Darwin office, quoting reliable reports which say that Dili is surrounded by anti-Fretland troops. There's shooting in the streets and indiscriminate killing. As I read more about the events of 1975, my grandfather's Dili building, the Toko Lai, kept coming up again and again. <laughs> With my grandmother's words ringing in my ears, I wanted to find out more about my family history in Timor. So early this year, Mum and I flew to East Timor. I'm standing across the street from the Tokolei building. My grandfather owned the shops to either side of the Toko Lay store, but the store itself sold hardware. Um, Toko is um, Bahasa Indonesian for store, Lay, our surname. Toko Lai is in the district of Kulmira. It's about a three minute walk from the Dili port. This was where mum grew up. It was only her third time back in Dili since she'd come to Australia. It was also the first time back inside her childhood home since her parents left it in 1975. Mum, is this what it looked like when you were a girl? No, it's smaller. <laughs> no, it's bigger. <laughs> yeah, this is my parent-in-law. Yeah. So what I've come to learn is that my grandfather didn't just own 
the one building with the name Toko Lai on the top. He owned the whole block and all the buildings, although they look joined together like townhouses, you can walk through them all because he owned them all. When the Civil War broke out in Timor, my grandfather's building became something of a refuge. My grandparents' extended family came from around the country as unrest grew in the villages and moved into the building thinking it would be safer in the city. At one point, there were about 100 people living in Tokolai. That is until December 7, 1975. I was sleeping under the bed, uh, where my parents sleep, the double bed. The parents said it was best to sleep on the ground because if there's any, any shooting, you're, you're less likely to get shot. This is Jung Fi Yi. In Chinese, you've got to call Yi, yi Jung Fi. My mum and grandparents were lucky enough to have left East Timor by 1975. But Jung Fi and other Chinese Timorese people I've met weren't so lucky. Jung Fi was 12 when the Indonesians invaded. And mum and dad said, oh, mum and dad said, no, they're coming. It's coming, it's coming, it's aeroplane. It was coming, the noise was gradually increased, increased and swoop across the sky. December 7 was a Sunday, dawn, when the Indonesian military launched a full-scale invasion. The city was pitch black. Members of the controlling political party, Fredlin, had turned off Dili's power supply. Indonesian warships fired mortar and cannon rounds for about an hour. Several hundred marines landed on the beach and many were killed by the fire of their own naval vessels. Then, at 5.45 a.m., soldiers fell from the sky. You see the parachute was drop, dropping, so he gunfire and all that. And so we saw one was hanging on the coconut tree. It was like dangling there, you know, and then, and then the next thing he just probably cut the... the rope or something and disappear, you know. So we know that Indonesians are here. Pakrista, Pakrista, you know Pakrista? He come down, come down for the air. There's the Portuguese, the Pakrista. This is Edmundu Chung. I spoke with him at a large social gathering of Chinese Timorese in Sydney. Edmundo was 18 years old in 1975 when the Indonesian army invaded. Like Jung Fi, Edmundo slept on the floor for fear of getting shot. The tank passed, the, the army, he passed. So Indonesia shooting, shooting the car. Ta, 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 ta. One is run, run to my, my, my size, shooting, shooting, he died. Nearly, nearly three died, no, no one picked up the, the, the people died. My mom and my dad look at the soldiers, they're all in like full uniform, they speak Bahasa, but like, they didn't understand what was the language. The soldiers was getting all the guns to say to everyone that, go, go outside, go outside. In 1975, Manuela Jong, just eight years old, was living next door to my grandfather's Toko Lai building with her father, her mother, nine brothers and sisters, and her brother-in-law. On the morning of December 7, the family were all at home. They didn't know the Indonesians had arrived until soldiers knocked on the door. So my dad was holding my brother's hand as they walk probably about like four or five steps away from all of us and the soldiers start shooting them from behind. 
And straight away, my dad was like rolling on the floor, and like we're all watching. And my mom was screaming, and my mom screaming and said all in Chinese in Tetum, but they didn't understand, so they just keep shooting. And then they shoot my brother once, and then he fell on the floor. He was unconscious. And then my mom keeps screaming, "Come, come, come back and shoot all of us! Why did you do this to my family?" When the soldiers walk away from Manuela's house, everyone is in shock. Her mum, who is pregnant, acts quickly. With the help of Manuela's sister, her mum picks up her dead husband. So I saw my brother was crawling with lots of blood, and then I call out to my mum, "Mum, mum, Coco is alive. He's alive." So my mum leave everything inside, come out and saw him. My mum like, like a happy relief that he's alive. After the soldiers had left Manuela's house, the family had to deal with her father's body. So then, we've got the shovel, and then my mom with the big tummy, and with my sister with the baby, and then all other one we all take turn to dig the hole to bury my dad. But the hole is not very deep, but just like enough to bury him. Jungfi and Manuela were just children in 1975, yet their memories are etched deep. Everyone say, "Oh, fireworks is so exciting!" Every time fireworks, it scares me because of the noise. They were burning the body. It was smell. You can you can taste it. You can taste that smell. It was so awful. It, was, it stays there for like two days, three days, and you can't eat because the smell was just terrible. We didn't leave the house for a while. Jung Fi recalls the Indonesians looting his family home. We didn't realize it was happening. We, until they, they start taking us, our belongings. We didn't have much. After the Indonesians stripped his home, Jungfi and his parents moved to his older brother's house. Indonesian soldiers soon caught up with them, and at gunpoint, the looting continued. And had the gun pointed at him, he was didn't know what was happening, and actually stripped his watches, his belt, his jeans, right in front of me. I was standing and looking. I said, "Whoa, <laughs> is that what they do?" You know. And my brother had a, a, a sewing machine and stuff. They actually took the, took the, the, the machines out. And, and also they took the motorbikes as well. And then if, if, if you want to have your bike back in the future, you have to buy them back from them. The Indonesia always come see, have a look, all my mom's jewelry. So they would take your mom's jewelry and she would have to put yes, it away? Yes, you take it and take them. He knew Lam was 22 years old when the Indonesians invaded East Timor. She lived with her parents and 14 siblings. She also remembers the soldiers looting. They took jewellery and her mum's precious sewing machine, a source of income for the family. She wanted to take the shopping machine. She wanted to take the top on it, not, not the leg. So my mum said, no, I have a lot of kick. I had to do the clothes for the... She said, you want Maumati? You want to die? Indonesia, Maumati, you want to die? Put the gun like that to my mum. And we cry, we were all we are wish to we cry, we do like that. And my mom not gave it to him, she said, put a gun like that to my mom. You wanna kill you? The soldiers returned to Hinu's family home several times. And not just to take stuff. Always comes, ask my mom, have got girl, have got something. Auntie, can I ask, as in the soldiers would want to rape you? Yeah, that's why, yeah, that's why my mom have to save we are. Save me and my sister today. 
And so your your mother had to send you to Sota to live with father in the church? Yeah, in the church. To avoid, he knew, and her sisters being raped. Their mother sent them to live in the main church in Dili as housekeepers for the priests, away from the prying eyes of the Indonesian soldiers. The threat of sexual violence came up in other Chinese Timorese stories about the Indonesian invasion. One woman told us about her parents who cut off her hair to make her look more like a boy. While mum and I were in Timor, we spent time with Chung Tet, my grandmother's cousin. On one of our outings, uncle took us to Sinarata, the Chinese cemetery in Dili. Uncle, um, what's, what's this memorial? All Chinese Timorese were killed by Indonesia during the invasion. Wow, it's a beautiful memorial. Mm. Um, it's marble. They Quite were uh, innocently killed. Mm-hmm. Innocently. No reason. Can you point out the names of perhaps oh, our many family? Of them. Many of them. Young Kuan Yi, your mother's house. Young Kim Xiong, my family. Lai Zhao Yin. Lai Yin. Many others. Seeing this name on the memorial was hard for mum. Lai Zhao Yin was mum's best friend. His family lived in my grandfather's Tokolai complex, and Zhao Yin and mum were inseparable. This means it's the same young, family? Young, yeah, yeah, this 14, 14 Yong. Lai, very. Lai, mm. so many. So many Lai. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20. Lai, my grandfather's name, my mum's maiden name. 26 Lai. My family name. Another place that mum and I visited was Dili Wharf, because this was the site of a massacre in the first 24 hours of the Indonesian invasion. I've spoken to several survivors of this atrocity to try and understand what happened at the wharf in December 1975. They didn't want to be interviewed for fear of bringing up painful memories. Some were also still scared to talk publicly. The fear and threat of violence by the Indonesians still strong, even 50 years on. One of the survivors from the wharf massacre is Chong Guayan. He was in his mid-twenties in 1975. He was living in my grandfather's Tokolai building when the Indonesians invaded. He didn't want to be interviewed for this episode, but he told us about a testimony he gave to Amnesty International in 1984. Here's some of Guayan's story. In the Tokolai, we heard a lot of shooting and the sound of machine guns. At about 10 that morning, they started bombarding and shooting at the house. People started screaming, saying they were civilians, not political. The Indonesians then broke into the building and told everyone to come out. They took us down to the beach by the sporting club. There are more than 10 of them. All of us were taken, including my wife, who was pregnant, and my child. At the sporting club, the women and children were separated from the men and told to walk to the nearby school. The men were forced to go to the harbour. The taller ones were told to stand in front. 
Guiyan was in a group that was told to go to a garden to dig graves, to bury dead Indonesian soldiers. The next morning, after another round of grave digging and burying Indonesian soldiers, Guiyan and the men were forced at gunpoint to walk back to the harbour. There, a horrific sight beheld them. At the harbour were many dead bodies. We were told to tie the bodies to iron poles, attach brakes, and throw the bodies in the sea. After we had thrown all the bodies in the sea, about 20 people were brought in, made to face the sea and shoot dead. They were Chinese people who live in Comera. There were about 100 Indonesians there, troops wearing green berets, brought them in, others wearing red berries, always told of them, killed them, shooting them in the head with M16 rifles. After the killing stopped, we spent another one or two hours tying the people as before and throwing them in the sea. Eventually, we were allowed to go. Guiyan says he witnessed the killing of about 40 Chinese Timorese. The amnesty report also describes how one father had to throw his own son into the sea. I'm standing at Dilly Wharf. I can see the calm ocean in front of me. On one of the last days in Dilly, I walk to the wharf one more time to remember in my own way those who were lost in 1975. In Chinese culture, We light incense and we bow three times to the tombstones of our ancestors. And because their bodies were never returned, I want to bow three times to this ocean. I bow for all the people who died at Dilly Wharf, all who suffered during the occupation and civil war. And I bow to all those who lost loved ones and everything they owned and everything they knew. Thank you so much for your time, Hugo. The biggest atrocities happened to the Chinese community in Dili was at the first day and the first week during the Indonesian invasion. While I was in Dili, I met with Hugo Fernandez, the director of the Centro Nacional Chega. That's Portuguese for the Centre of Truth and Reconciliation. The centre is also a museum which holds archives from the Chega report. Chega was the final report from the 2001 Timor-Leste Truth Commission. Hugo was one of its co-editors. The Truth Commission team spent two years gathering tens of thousands of testimonies and documents from across the country. Why the Chinese community, the Timorese Chinese community, become target? Because of suspicions of being a communist particularly because uh, they were not targeted during the civil war and, and somehow it gave them impression that uh, they are supporters of one of the political parties in Timor at the time. Later investigations found that all races and all religions were caught up in the violence in East Timor, from the civil war and throughout the 24 years of Indonesian occupation. So do they really have a list of the people that die on the Togolite. A UN report? 
In 2006, the Chega report was released to the public. But many of the people who survived the violence in East Timor don't know the report exists. Like Manuela, whose father was killed by the Indonesians. During our interview with Manuela, my producer Amanda showed her the Chega report. That's my dad. With the names of those injured and killed. That's my dad. Samyiti is my dad, yes. Meuyung, that's my brother, the one that injured. He, he survived. Yeah, first time we, we know that there's a, a story, have all this. It was, yeah, it just says from a witness testimony. Oh, we didn't know. We, because we have never, I mean, like, everyone in Timor's know, but we haven't told any, like, all the... For many of those who survived the violent invasion, living under the Indonesians became untenable. So some left for Portugal, or places like Macau, even Jakarta. Others that we've spoken with, like Manuela, Jungfi, live in Australia. But the ties of identity bind strong. It's how my mum, Leisha Lorraine, and those first refugees in Australia formed the Timorese Chinese Association of New South Wales. And to this day, they still meet every month, sometimes every week, to chat, eat, drink and dance. One Saturday night, my producer Amanda and I went along with Mum to one of these gatherings out in Western Sydney. Tony Vaughan, the president of the association, welcomed us. My niece. What do you think brings everyone back together? Because we are back around the Chinese Hakka, mostly Hakka people. In, in, in Timor, you know, we can still like join the, the culture together. They also share an identity, and that is being Chinese Timorese. It's my mum's identity, my papa, my grandmother's identity, and increasingly part of my own sense of self. I want to go back to Timor Leste again, and the next time with my husband and children. And I've had a bit of time to think about the trip and it really meant a lot to me to travel to Timor because it put a lot of things um, about, you know, the Timor Leste community into perspective and it um, taught me a lot about you, Mum. What was it like for you to take me back to Dili? It's important for you to know where you come from. And also it's important to remember the history of the Tokolai. The story of Tokolai was narrated by Millie Skoko and co-produced by Millie and Amanda Ho. The sound engineer was Hamish Camilleri and the supervising producer, Michelle Rayner. The Amnesty International report reading was by Dong Xing. Thanks to those who shared their stories with Millie and Amanda, a big shout out to Millie's mum, Li Xiao, Lorraine Lai. Thanks too to the Timorese Chinese Associations of New South Wales and the Northern Territory for all the help. I'm Kirsty Melville, 
and I'll catch you next time for another deep dive into the past here on the History Listen. See you then. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.